Previously on Sweeney Todd. Why, Tobias Rag, where have you been since you left Mr. Snow's in paper buildings? I have gone into another line. I am with Sweeney Todd, the barber of Fleet Street, opposite St. Dunstan's. I'll tell you what power I have over your mother, and then perhaps you will be satisfied. She took a silver candlestick from Mr. King's chambers to pay it. I knows it. I can prove it. Now mind, if you force me by any conduct of your own to mention this thing, you will be your mother's executioner. <laughs> I have a small packet which has been entrusted to me to deliver to one of the family. I knows the value of them pals. The difficulty of getting rid of them. If you ask anything below their value, you are suspecting. I'll soon polish off your friend, sir. And then I'll begin upon you. <laughs> Perhaps one of the most pitiable objects now in our history is poor Tobias, Sweeney Todd's boy, who certainly had his suspicions roused in the most terrific manner, but who was terrified by the threats of what the barber was capable of doing, both to himself and against his mother, from making any disclosures. The effect upon his personal appearance of this wear and tear of his intellect was striking and manifest. The hue of youth and health entirely departed from his cheeks, and he looked so sad and careworn that it was quite a terrible thing to look upon a young lad so, as it were, upon the threshold of existence, and in whom anxious thoughts were making such war upon the physical energies. His cheeks were pale and sunken, his eyes had an unnatural brightness about them, and to look upon his lips, one would think that they had never parted in a smile for many a day. So sadly were they compressed together. He seemed ever to be watching likewise for something fearful, and even as he walked the streets he would frequently turn and look inquiringly round him with a shudder. And in his brief interview with Colonel Jeffrey and his friend the captain, we can have a tolerably good impression of the state of his mind. Oppressed with fears and all sorts of dreadful thoughts, panting to give utterance to what he knew and to what he suspected, and yet terrified into silence for his mother's sake, we cannot but view him as signally entitled to the sympathy of the reader, and as in all respects one sincerely to be pitied for the cruel circumstances in which he was placed. The sun is shining brightly, and even that busy region of trade and commerce, Fleet Street, is looking gay and beautiful. But not for that poor, spirit-stricken lad or any of the sights and sounds which used to make up the delight of his existence, reaching his eyes or ears now with their accustomed force. He sits, moody and alone, and in the position which he always assumes when Sweeney Todd is from home. That is to say, with his head resting on his hands, and looking the picture of melancholy abstraction. "'What shall I do?' he said to himself. "'What will become of me? "'I think if I live here any longer, I shall go out of my senses. "'Sweeney Todd is a murderer, I am quite certain of it, "'and I wish to say so. "'But I dare not, for my mother's sake. "'Alas, alas, the end of it will be that he will kill me, "'or that I shall go out of my senses.' and then I shall die in some madhouse, and no one will care what I say. The boy wept bitterly after he had uttered these melancholy reflections, and he felt his tears something of a relief to him, so that he looked up after a little time, and glanced around him. What a strange thing, he said, that people should come into this shop, to my certain knowledge you never go out of it again, and yet what becomes of them? I cannot tell. He looked with a shuddering anxiety towards the parlour, the door of which Sweeney Todd took care to lock always when he left the place, and he thought that he should like much to have a thorough examination of that room. I have been in it, he said, and it seems full of cupboards and strange holes and corners, such as I never saw before, and there is an odd stench in it that I cannot make out at all. But it's out of the question thinking of ever being in it above a few minutes at a time, for Sweeney Todd takes good care of that. 
The boy rose and opened a cupboard that was in the shop. It was perfectly empty. Now that's strange, he said. There was a walking stick with an ivory top to it here just before he went out, and I could swear it belonged to a man who came in here to be shaved. More than once, more than twice too, when I have come in suddenly I have seen people's hats, and Sweeney Todd would try and make me believe that people go away after being shaved and leave their hats behind them. He walked up to the shaving chair, as it was called, which was a large old-fashioned piece of furniture, made of oak and carved, and as the boy threw himself into it, he said, What an odd thing it is that this chair is screwed so tight to the floor. Here is a complete fixture, and Sweeney Todd says that is so it's because it's in the best possible light, and if he were not to make it fast in such a way, the customers would shift it about from place to place so that he could not conveniently shave them. It may be true, but I don't know. And you have your doubts, said the voice of Sweeney Todd, as that individual with a noiseless step walked into the shop. You have your doubts, Tobias. There can be no doubt that I shall have to cut your throat. That is quite clear. No! No, have mercy upon me. I did not mean what I said. Then it is uncommonly imprudent to say it, Tobias. Do you remember our last conversation? Do you remember that I can hang your mother when I please? Because if you do not, I beg to put you in mind of that pleasant little circumstance. I cannot forget. I do not forget. Tis well. And mark me. I will not have you assume such an aspect as you wear when I am not here. You don't look cheerful, Tobias, and notwithstanding your excellent situation, with little to do and the number of lovets pies you eat, you fall away. I cannot help it, said Tobias. Since you told me what you did concerning my mother, I have been so anxious that I cannot help. Why should you be so anxious? Her preservation depends upon yourself and upon yourself wholly. Hmm. You have but to keep silent, and she is safe. But if you utter one word that shall be displeasing to me about my affairs, mark me, Tobias. She comes to the scaffold, and if I cannot conveniently place you in the same madhouse where the last boy I had was placed... I shall certainly be under the troublesome necessity of cutting your throat. I will be silent. I will say nothing, Mr. Todd. I know I shall die soon, and then you will get rid of me altogether. And I don't care how soon that may be, for I am quite weary of my life. I shall be glad when it's over. Very good, said the barber. That's all a matter of taste. And now, Tobias, I desire that you look cheerful and smile. For a gentleman is outside, feeling his chin with his hand, and thinking he may as well come in and be shaved. I may want you, Tobias, to go to Billingsgate, and bring me a pennyworth of shrimps. <sighs> yes, thought Tobias, with a groan. Yes, while you murder him. It would seem as if Sweeney Todd, after his adventure in trying to dispose of the string of pearls which he possessed began to feel a little doubtful about his chances of success in that matter. For when he made his next attempt at so doing, he made it after a totally different fashion. That evening, towards the close of night, while Tobias sat alone in the shop, in his usual deep dejection, a stranger entered the place with a large blue bag in his hand and looked inquiringly about him. "'Hello, my lad,' said he. "'Is this Mr. Todd's?' "'Yes,' said Tobias. But he is not at home. What do you want? Oh, well, I'll be hanged, said the man. If this don't beat everything. You don't mean to tell me he's a barber, do you? Indeed I do. Don't you see? Yes, I see, to be sure, but I'll be shot if I thought of it beforehand. What do you think he's been doing? Doing? said Tobias, with animation. Do you think he'll be hanged? Well, no, I don't say it's a hanging matter, although you seem as if you wished it was. <laughs> but I'll just tell you now, we are artists at the west end of the town. Artists? Do you mean to say you draw pictures? 
Oh, no, we make clothes, but we call ourselves artists now because tailors are out of fashion. Oh, that's it, is it? Yes, that's it, and you would scarcely believe it, but he came to our shop, actually, and ordered a suit of clothes which were to come to no less a sum than thirty pounds, and told us to make them up in such a style that they were to do for any nobleman, and he gave his name and address as Mr. Todd, this number in Fleet Street, but I hadn't the least idea that he was a barber. If I had, I'm quite certain that the clothes would not have been finished in the style they are. Quite the reverse. <laughs> well, said Tobias, I can't think what he wants such clothing for, but I suppose it's all right. Was he a tall, ugly-looking fella? Yeah, as ugly as the very devil. I'll just show you the things, as he is not at home. The coat is of the finest velvet, lined with silk and trimmed with lace. Did you ever in all your life see such a coat for a barber? Indeed, I never did, but it is some scheme of his, of course. It is a superb coat. Yes, and all the rest of the dress is of the same style. What on earth can he be going to do with it? I can't think, for it's only fit to go to court in. Oh, well, I know nothing about it, said Tobias with a sigh. You can leave it here or not as you like. It's all one to me. Well, you seem to be the most melancholy wretch ever I came near. What's the matter with you? The matter with me? Oh, nothing. Oh, of course I'm as happy as I can be. Ain't I Sweeney Todd's apprentice? And ain't that enough to make anybody sing all day long? Maybe, for all I know, but certainly you don't seem to be in a singing humour. But however, we artists cannot waste our time, so just be so good as to take care of the clothes and be sure you give them to your master. And so I wash my hands of the transaction. Hmm. Very good, he shall have them. But do you mean to leave such valuable clothes without getting the money for them? Not exactly, for they are paid for. Oh, that makes all the difference. He shall have them. Scarcely had this tailor left the place when a boy arrived with a parcel, and looking around him with undisguised astonishment, said, Isn't there some other Mr. Todd in Fleet Street? Not that I know of, said Tobias. What have you got there? Silk stockings, gloves, lace, cravats, ruffles, and so on. The deuce you have. I dare say it's all right. I shall leave them. They are paid for. This is the name, and this is the number. Now, stupid! The last exclamation arose from the fact that this boy, in going out, ran up against another who was coming in. Can't you see where you're going? said the new arrival. What's that to you? I have a good mind to punch your head. Do it, and then come down to our court and see what a licking I'll give you. Will you? Why don't you? Only let me catch you, that's all. They stood for some moments so close together that their noses very nearly touched. And then, after mutual assertions of what they would do if they caught each other, although in either case to stretch out an arm would have been quite sufficient to have accomplished that object, they separated, and the last comer said to Tobias, in a tone of irritation, probably consequent upon the misunderstanding he had just had with the hosier's boy. You can tell Mr. Todd that the carriage will be ready at half-past seven precisely. And then he went away, leaving Tobias in a state of great bewilderment as to what Sweeney Todd could possibly be about with such an amount of finery as that which was evidently coming home for him. I can't make it out, he said. It's some villainy, of course. But I can't make out what it is. I wish I knew. I might thwart him in it. He is a villain, and neither could nor would project anything good. But what can I do? I am quite helpless in this, and will just let it take its course. I can only wish for a power of action I will never possess. Alas, alas, I am very sad, and know not what will become of me. I wish that I was in my grave, and there I am sure I shall be soon unless something happens to turn the tide of all this wretched evil fortune that has come upon me. I will observe all I can, thought Tobias to himself, and do what I can to put a stop to his mischiefs, but I fear it will be very little he will allow me to observe, and perhaps still less that he will allow me to do, but I can but try and do my best. Poor Tobias's best, as regarded achieving anything against Sweeney Todd, we may well suppose would be little indeed, for that individual was not the man to give anybody an opportunity of doing much, and possessed as he was of the most consummate art, 
as well as the greatest possible amount of unscrupulousness. There can be very little doubt but that any attempt poor Tobias might make would recoil upon himself. In about another half hour the barber returned, and his first question was, Have any things been left for me? Yes, sir, said Tobias. Here are two parcels, and a boy has been to say that the carriage will be ready at half-past seven precisely. Tis well, said the barber. That will do. And Tobias, you will be careful whilst I am gone of the shop. I shall be back in half an hour, mind you, not later. And be sure I find you here at your post. But you may say, if anyone comes here on business, that there will be neither shaving nor dressing tonight. You understand me? Yes, sir, certainly. Sweeney Todd then took the bundles which contained the costly apparel, and retired into the parlour with them. And as it was then seven o'clock, Tobias correctly enough supposed that he had gone to dress himself, and he waited with a considerable amount of curiosity to see what sort of an appearance the barber would cut in his fine apparel. Tobias had not to control his impatience long, for in less than twenty minutes out came Sweeney Todd, attired in the very height of fashion for the period. His waistcoat was something positively gorgeous, and his fingers were loaded with such costly rings that they quite dazzled the sight of Tobias to look upon. Then, moreover, he wore a sword with a jewelled hilt, but it was one which Tobias really thought he had seen before, for he had a recollection that a gentleman had come in to have his hair dressed, and had taken it off, and laid just such a sword across his hat during the operation. Remember, said Sweeney Todd, remember your instructions, obey them to the letter, and no doubt you will ultimately become happy and independent. With these words, Sweeney Todd left the place, and poor Tobias looked after him with a groan, as he repeated the words, happy and independent. Alas, what a mockery it is of this man to speak to me in such a way. I only wish that I were dead. But we will leave Tobias to his own reflections, and follow the more interesting progress of Sweeney Todd, who, for some reason best known to himself, was then playing so grand a part, and casting away so large a sum of money. He made his way to a livery stables in the immediate neighbourhood, and there, sure enough, the horses were being placed to a handsome carriage. And all being very soon in readiness, Sweeney Todd gave some whispered directions to the driver. Then the vehicle started off westward. At that time, Hyde Park Corner was very nearly out of town, and it looked as if you were getting a glimpse of the country, and actually seeing something of the peasantry of England when you got another couple of miles off. And that was the direction in which Sweeney Todd went. And as he goes, we may as well introduce to the reader the sort of individual whom he was going to visit in so much state, and for whom he thought it necessary to go to such great expense. At that period, the follies and vices of the nobility were somewhere about as great as they are now, and consequently extravagance induced on so many occasions troublesome sacrifice of money, and it was found extremely convenient to apply to a man of the name of John Mundell, an exceedingly wealthy person, a Dutchman by extraction, who was reported to make immense sums of money by lending to the nobility and others what they required on emergencies, at enormous rates of interest. But it must not be supposed that John Mundell was so confiding as to lend his money without security. It was quite the reverse, for he took care to have the jewels, some costly plate or the title deeds of an estate, perchance, as security before he would part with a single shilling of his cash. In point of fact, John Mundell was nothing more than a pawnbroker on a very extensive scale, and although he had an office in town, he usually received his more aristocratic customers at his private residence, which was about two miles off, on the Uxbridge Road. After this explanation, it can very easily be imagined what was the scheme of Sweeney Todd, and that he considered if he borrowed from John Mundell a sum equal in amount to half the real value of the pearls. He should be well rid of the property which he certainly could not sufficiently well account for the possession of, to enable him to dispose of it openly to the highest bidder. We give Sweeney Todd great credit for the scheme he proposes. It was eminently calculated to succeed, and one which in the way he undertook it was certainly set about in the best possible way. 
During his ride, he revolved in his mind exactly what he should say to John Mundell, and from what we know of him, we may be well convinced that Sweeney Todd was not likely to fail from any amount of bashfulness in the transaction, but that on the contrary, he was just the man to succeed in any scheme which required great assurance to carry it through. For he was certainly master of great assurance, and possessed of a kind of diplomatic skill which, had fortune placed him in a more elevated position of life, would no doubt have made a great man of him, and gained him great political reputation. John Mundell's villa, which was called, by the by, Mundell House, was a large, handsome and modern structure, surrounded by a few acres of pleasure gardens, which, however, the moneylender never looked at, for his whole soul was too much engrossed by his love for cash to enable him to do so. And if he derived any satisfaction at all from it, that satisfaction must have been entirely owing to the fact that he had wrung mansion, grounds, and all the costly furnishing of the former from an improvident debtor, who had been forced to fly the country, and leave his property wholly in the hands of the moneylender and usurer. It was but a short drive with the really handsome horses that Sweeney Todd had succeeded in hiring for the occasion, and he soon found himself opposite the entrance gates of Mundell House. His great object now was that the usurer should see the equipage which he had brought down, and he accordingly desired the footman who had accompanied him at once to ring the bell at the entrance gate, and to say that a gentleman was waiting in his carriage to see Mr. Mundell. This was done, and when the moneylender's servant reported to him that the equipage was a costly one, and that in his opinion the visitor must be some nobleman of great rank, John Mundell made no difficulty about the matter, but walked down to the gate at once where he immediately mentally subscribed to the opinion of his servant, by admitting to himself that the equipage was faultless, and presumed at once that it did belong to some person of great rank. He was proportionally humble, as such men always are, and advancing to the side of the carriage, he begged to know what commands his lordship, or so he called him at once, had for him. "'I wish to know,' said Sweeney Todd, "'Mr. Mundell, if you were inclined to lay under an obligation a rather illustrious lady, by helping her out of a little pecuniary difficulty. John Mundell glanced again at the equipage, and he likewise saw something of the rich dress of his visitor, who had not disputed the title which had been applied to him of Lord, and he made up his mind accordingly that it was just one of the transactions that would suit him provided the security that would be offered was of a tangible nature. That was the only point upon which John Mundell had the remotest doubt, but at all events he urgently pressed his visitor to alight and walk in. As Sweeney Todd's object as far as the moneylender's having seen the carriage was fully answered, he had no objection to enter the house, which he accordingly did at once, being preceded by John Mundell who became each moment more and more impressed with the fact, as he considered it, that his guest was some person of very great rank and importance in society. He ushered him into a splendidly furnished apartment, and after offering him refreshments, which Sweeney Todd politely declined, he waited with no small degree of impatience for his visitor to be explicit with regard to the object of his visit. "'I should,' said Sweeney Todd, have myself accommodated the illustrious lady with the sum of money she requires, but as I could not do so without encumbering some estates, she positively forbade me to think of it. <laughs> Certainly, said Mr. Mandel. She is a very illustrious lady, I presume. Very illustrious indeed, but it must be a condition of this transaction, if you at all enter into it that you are not to inquire precisely who she is, nor are you to inquire precisely who I am. It's not my usual way of conducting business, but if everything else be satisfactory, I shall not cavil at it. Very good. By everything else being satisfactory, I presume you mean the security offered. Why, yes, that is of great importance, my lord. I informed the illustrious lady that as the affair was to be wrapped up in something of a mystery, security must be extremely ample. That's a very proper view to take of the matter, my lord. I wonder, 
thought John Mundell, if he is a duke. I'll call him your grace next time and see if he objects to it. Therefore, continued Sweeney Todd, the illustrious lady placed in my hand security to a third greater amount than she required. Certainly, certainly, a very proper arrangement, your grace. May I ask the nature of the proffered security? Jewels. Highly satisfactory and unexceptionable security. They go into a small space and do not deteriorate in value. And if they do, said the barber, deteriorate in value, it would make no difference to you, for the illustrious person's honour will be committed to their redemption. I don't doubt that, your grace, in the least. I, I merely made the remark incidentally, quite incidentally. Of course, of course, and I trust before going further that you are quite in a position to enter into this subject. <sighs> Certainly I am, and I am proud to say to any amount. Show me the money's worth, your grace, and I will show you the money. That's my way of doing business, and no one can say that John Mundell ever shrunk from a matter that was brought fairly before him, and that he considered worth his going into. <sighs> it was by hearing such a character of you that I was induced to come to you. What do you think of that? Sweeney Todd took from his pocket with a careless air the string of pearls, and cast them down before the eyes of the money-lender, who took them up and ran them rapidly through his fingers for a few seconds, before he said, I thought there was but one string like this in the kingdom, and that those belonged to the queen. Well, said Sweeney Todd, I humbly beg your grace's pardon. How much money does your grace require on these pearls? Twelve thousand pounds is their current value if a sale of them was enforced. Eight thousand required of you on their security. Eight thousand is a large sum. As a general thing, I lend but half the value upon anything. But in this case, to oblige your grace and the illustrious personage, I do not, of course, hesitate for one moment, but shall for one month lend the required amount. That'll do, said Sweeney Todd scarcely concealing the exultation he felt at getting so much more from John Mundell than he expected, and for which he certainly would not have got if the money-lender had not been most fully and completely impressed with the idea that the pearls belonged to the Queen, and that he had actually at length majesty itself for a customer. He did not suppose for one moment that it was the Queen who wanted the money, but his view of the case was that she had lent the pearls to this nobleman to meet some exigency of his own, and that, of course, they would be redeemed very shortly. Altogether a more pleasant transaction for John Mundell could not have been imagined. It was just the sort of thing he would have looked out for, and had the greatest satisfaction in bringing to a conclusion, and he considered it was opening the door to the highest class of business in his way that he was capable of doing. "'In what name, Your Grace?' he said. "'Shall I draw a cheque upon my banker?' Mm. "'In the name of Colonel George.' "'Certainly, certainly, and if Your Grace will give me an acknowledgement for eight thousand, "'and please to understand that at the end of a month from this time "'the transaction will be renewed if necessary, "'I will give you a cheque for seven thousand five hundred pounds.' "'Why seven thousand five hundred only, when you mentioned eight thousand? "'The five hundred is my little commission upon the transaction.' Your Grace will perceive that I appreciate highly the honour of Your Grace's custom, and consequently charge the lowest possible price. I can assure Your Grace I could get more for my money by a great deal, but the pleasure of being able to meet Your Grace's views is so great that I am willing to make a sacrifice, and therefore it is that I say five hundred, when really I ought to say a thousand, taking into consideration the great scarcity of money at the present juncture. And I can assure Your Grace that— Peace, said Sweeney Todd. Give me the money, and if it be not convenient to redeem the jewels at the end of the month from this time, you will hear from me most assuredly. <laughs> I am quite satisfied of that, said John Mundell, and he accordingly drew a cheque for £7,500, which he handed to Sweeney Todd, who put it in his pocket, not a little delighted that at last he had got rid of his pearls, even at a price so far beneath their real value. 
I need scarcely urge upon you, Mr. Mundell, he said, the propriety of keeping this affair profoundly secret. Indeed you need not, Your Grace, for it is part of my business to be discreet and cautious. I should very soon have nothing to do in my line, Your Grace may depend, if I were to talk about it. No, this transaction will forever remain locked up in my own breast, and no living soul but Your Grace and I need know what has occurred. With this, John Mundell showed Sweeney Todd to his carriage, with abundance of respect, and in two minutes more he was travelling along towards town, with what might be considered a small fortune in his pocket. We should have noticed earlier that Sweeney Todd had, upon the occasion of his going to sell the pearls to the lapidary in the city, made some great alterations in his appearance, so that it was not likely he should be recognised again to a positive certainty. For example, having no whiskers whatever of his own, he had put on a large black pair of false ones, as well as moustachios, and he had given some colour to his cheeks likewise, which had so completely altered his appearance that those who were most intimate with him would not have known him, except by his voice, and that he took great care to alter in his intercourse with John Mundell, so that it should not become a future means of detection. I thought that this would succeed he muttered to himself as he went towards town, and I have not been deceived. For three months longer and only three I will carry on the business in Fleet Street, so that any sudden alteration in my fortunes may not give rise to suspicion. He was then silent for some minutes, during which he appeared to be revolving some very knotty question in his brain, and then he said, suddenly, Well, well, as regards Tobias... I think it will be safer, unquestionably, to put him out of the way by taking his life than to try to dispose of him in a madhouse. And I think there are one or two more persons whom it will be highly necessary to prevent being mischievous at all events at present. I must think. When such a man as Sweeney Todd set about thinking, there could be no possible doubt but that some serious mischief was meditated and anyone who could have watched his face during that ride home from the moneylenders would have seen by its expression that the thoughts which agitated him were of a dark and desperate character, and such as anybody but himself would have shrunk from aghast. But he was not a man to shrink from anything, and on the contrary, the more a set of circumstances presented themselves in a gloomy and a terrific aspect, the better they seemed to suit him and the peculiar constitution of his mind. There can be no doubt but that the love of money was the predominant feeling in Sweeney Todd's intellectual organisation, and that by the amount it would bring him, or the amount it would deprive him of, he measured everything. With such a man, then, no question of morality or ordinary feeling could arise, and there can be no doubt but that he would quite willingly have sacrificed the whole human race, if by doing so he could have achieved any of the objects of his ambition. And so, on his road homeward, he probably made up his mind to plunge still deeper into criminality, and perchance to indulge in acts that a man not already so deeply versed in iniquity would have shrunk from with the most positive terror. And by a strange style of reasoning, such men as Sweeney Todd reconcile themselves to the most heinous crimes upon the ground of what they call policy. That is to say that having committed some serious offence, they are compelled to commit a great number more, for the purpose of endeavouring to avoid the consequences of the first lot, and hence the continuance of criminality becomes a matter necessary to self-defence, and an essential ingredient in their consideration of self-preservation. Probably Sweeney Todd had been for the greater part of his life, aiming at the possession of extensive pecuniary resources, and no doubt by the aid of a superior intellect, and a mind full of craft and design, he had managed to make others subservient to his views. And now that those views were answered, and that his underlings and accomplices were no longer required, they became positively dangerous. He was well aware of that cold-blooded policy, which teaches that it is far safer to destroy than to cast away the tools by which a man carves his way to power and fortune. They shall die, said Sweeney Todd. Dead men tell no tales, nor women, nor boys either, and they shall all die, after which there will, I think, be a serious fire 
in Fleet Street. <laughs> it may spread to what mischief it likes. Always provided it stops not sure of the entire destruction of my house and premises. Rare sport. Rare sport will it be to me. For then I will at once commence a new career. In which the barber will be forgotten. And the man of fashion only seen and remembered. For with this last addition to my means. I am fully capable of vying with the highest and the noblest. Let them be who they may. <sighs> this seemed a pleasant train of reflections to Sweeney Todd, and as the coach entered Fleet Street there sat such a grim smile upon his countenance that he looked like some fiend in human shape who had just completed the destruction of a human soul. When he reached the livery stables to which he directed them to drive instead of to his own shop, he rewarded all who had gone with him most liberally so that the coachman and footman, who were both servants out of place, would have had no objection for Sweeney Todd every day to have gone on some such an expedition, so that they should receive as liberal wages for the small part they enacted in it, as they did upon that occasion. He then walked from the stables towards his own house, but upon reaching there a little disappointment awaited him, for he found to his surprise that no light was burning, and when he placed his hand upon the shop door, it opened. There was no trace of Tobias. Although he, Sweeney Todd, called loudly upon him the moment he set foot within the shop. Then a feeling of great approbation crept across the barber, and he groped anxiously about for some matches, by the aid of which he hoped to procure a light, and then an explanation of the mysterious absence of Tobias. But in order that we may in its proper form relate how it was that Tobias had had the daring, thus in open contradiction of his master, to be away from the shop, we must devote to Tobias a chapter which will plead his extenuation. Tobias guessed, and guessed rightly too, that when Sweeney Todd said he would be away half an hour, he only mentioned that short period of time in order to keep the lad's vigilance on the alert and to prevent him from taking advantage of a more protracted absence. The very style and manner in which he had gone out precluded the likelihood of it being for so short a period of time, and that circumstance set Tobias seriously thinking over a situation which was becoming more intolerable every day. The lad had the sense to feel that he could not go on much longer as he was going on, and that in a short time such a life would destroy him. It is beyond endurance! he said, and I know not what to do, and since Sweeney Todd has told me that the boy he had before went out of his senses, and is now in the cell of a madhouse, I feel that such will be my fate, and that I too shall come to that dreadful end, and then no one will believe a word I utter, but consider everything to be mere raving. After a time, as the darkness increased, he lit the lamp which hung in the shop, which until it was closed for the night he usually shared a dim ray from the window. Then he sat down to think again, and he said to himself, If I could but summon courage to ask my mother about this robbery, which Sweeney Todd imputes to her, she might assure me it was false, and that she never did such a deed. But then it is dreadful for me to ask her such a question, because it may be true. And then, how shocking it would be for her to be forced to confess to me, her own son, such a circumstance. These were the honourable feelings which prevented Tobias from questioning his mother as regarded Todd's accusation of her, an accusation too dreadful to believe implicitly, and yet sufficiently probable for him to have a strong suspicion that it might be true after all. It is to be deeply regretted that Tobias's philosophy did not carry him a little further, and make him see the moment the charge was made, that he ought unquestionably to investigate it to the very utmost. But still we could hardly expect from a mere boy that acute reasoning and power of action, which depends so much on the knowledge of the world, and an extensive practice in the usages of society. He wrung his hands, and he wept every now and then in sad speech, bitterly bemoaning his situation, until at length, with a sudden resolution, he sprang to his feet, exclaiming, This night shall end it. I can endure it no more. I will fly from this place and seek my fortune elsewhere. Any amount of distress, danger, or death itself even is preferable to the dreadful life I lead. 
He walked some paces towards the door, and then he paused, as he said to himself in a low tone, Todd will surely not be home yet for a while, and why should I then neglect the only opportunity I may ever have of searching this house to satisfy my mind as regards any of the mysteries it contains? He paused over this thought, and considered well its danger. For dangerous indeed it was to no small extent, but he was desperate, and with a resolution that scarcely could have been expected from him, he determined upon taking that first step above all others, which Todd was almost certain to punish with death. He closed the shop door and bolted it upon the inside, so that he could not be suddenly interrupted, and then he looked around him carefully for some weapon by the aid of which he should be able to break his way into the parlour, which the barber always kept closed and locked in his absence, a weapon that would answer the purpose of breaking any lock if Tobias chose to proceed so roughly to work, was close at hand in the iron bar, which, when the place was closed at night, secured a shutter. Wrought up as he was to almost frenzy, Tobias seized this bar, and advancing towards the parlour door, he with one blow smashed the lock to atoms, and the door soon yielded. The moment it did so, there was a crash of glass, and when Tobias entered the room, he saw that upon its threshold lay a wine-glass, shattered to atoms, and he felt certain it had been placed in some artful position by Sweeney Todd, as a detector, when he should return of any attempt that had been made upon the door of the parlour. And now Tobias felt that he was so far committed that he might as well go on with his work, and accordingly he lit a candle which he found upon the parlour table, and then proceeded to make what discoveries he could. Several of the cupboards in the room yielded at once to his hands, and in them he found nothing remarkable, but there was one that he could not open, so without a moment's hesitation he had recourse to the bar of iron again, and broke its lock. When the door swung open, and to his astonishment there tumbled out of this cupboard such a volley of hats of all sorts and descriptions, some looped with silver, some three-cornered, and some square, that they formed quite a museum of that article of attire, and excited the greatest surprise in the mind of Tobias, at the same time that they tended very greatly to confirm some other thoughts and feelings which he had concerning Sweeney Todd. This was the only cupboard which was fast, although there was another door which looked as if it opened into one. When Tobias broke that down with the bar of iron, he found it was the door which led to the staircase conducting to the upper part of the house, that upper part which Sweeney Todd with all his avarice would never let, and of which the shutters were kept continually closed, so that the opposite neighbours never caught a glimpse into any of the apartments. With cautious and slow steps, which he adopted instantaneously, although he knew that there was no one in the house but himself, Tobias ascended the staircase. "'I will go to the very top rooms first, he said to himself, and so examine them all as I come down, and then, if Todd should return suddenly, I shall have a better chance of hearing him than if I had begun below and went upwards.' Acting upon this prudent scheme, he went up to the attics, all the doors of which were swinging open, and there was nothing in any one of them whatever. He descended to the second floor with the like result, and a feeling of great disappointment began to creep over him at the thought that, after all, the barber's house might not repay the trouble of examination. But when he reached the first floor, he soon found abundant reason to alter his opinion. The doors were fast, and he had to burst them open, and when he got in he found that those rooms were partially furnished, and that they contained a great quantity of miscellaneous property, of all kinds and descriptions. In one corner was an enormous quantity of walking sticks, some of which were of a very costly and expensive character, with gold and silver chased tops to them, and in another corner was a great number of umbrellas, in fact at least a hundred of them. Then there were boots and shoes lying upon the floor, partially covered up as if to keep them from dirt. There were thirty or forty swords of different styles and patterns, many of them appearing to be very firm blades, and in one or two cases the scabbards were richly ornamented. At one end of the front and larger of the two rooms was an old-fashioned-looking bureau of great size, 
and with as much woodwork in it as seemed required to make at least a couple of such articles of furniture. This was very securely locked, and presented more difficulties in the way of opening it than any of the doors had done, for the lock was of great strength and apparent durability. Moreover, it was not so easily got at, but at length, by using the bar as a sort of lever, instead of as a mere machine to strike with, Tobias succeeded in forcing this bureau open, and then his eyes were perfectly dazzled with the amount of jewellery and trinkets of all kinds and descriptions that were exhibited to his gaze. There was a great number of watches, gold chains, silver and gold snuff-boxes, and a large assortment of rings, shoe-buckles and brooches. These articles must have been of great value, and Tobias could not help exclaiming aloud, How could Sweeney Todd come by these articles, except by the murder of their owners? This indeed seemed but too probable a supposition, and the more especially so, as in a further part of this bureau, a great quantity of apparel was found by Tobias. He stood with a candle in his hand, looking upon these various objects for more than a quarter of an hour, and then, as a sudden and natural thought came across him, of how completely a few of them even would satisfy his wants, and his mother's, for a long time to come, he stretched forth his hand towards the glittering mass, but he drew it back again with a shudder, saying, No, no, these things are the plunder of the dead. Let Sweeney Todd keep them to himself, and look upon them if he can with the eyes of enjoyment. I will have none of them. They would bring misfortune, along with every guinea that they might be turned into. As he spoke, he heard St Dunstan's clock strike nine, and he started at the sound, for it let him know that already Sweeney Todd had been away an hour beyond the time he said he would be, so that there was a probability of his quick return now, and it would scarcely be safe to linger longer in his home. I must be gone, I must be gone. I should like to look upon my mother's face once more before I leave London forever, perhaps. I may tell her of the danger she is in from Todd's knowledge of her secret. No, no, I cannot speak to her of that. I must go and leave her to those chances which I hope and trust will work favourably for her. It was a strange and sudden whim that took him, rather than a matter of reflection that induced him, instead of his own hat, to take one of those which were lying so indiscriminately at his feet. And he did so. By mere accident it turned out to be an exceedingly handsome hat, of rich workmanship and material. And then Tobias, feeling terrified lest Sweeney Todd should return before he could leave the place, paid no attention to anything but turned from the shop, merely pulling the door after him, and then darting over the road towards the temple like a hunted hare. For his great wish was to see his mother, and then he had an undefined notion that his best plan for escaping the clutches of Sweeney Todd would be to go to sea. In common with all boys of his age who know nothing whatever of the life of a sailor, it presented itself in the most fascinating colours. A sailor ashore and a sailor afloat are about as two different things as the world can present. But to the imagination of Tobias Rag, a sailor was somebody who was always dancing hornpipes, spending money, and telling wonderful stories. No wonder, then, that the profession presented itself under such fascinating colours to all such persons as Tobias. And as it seemed, and seems still, to be a sort of general understanding that the real condition of a sailor should be mystified in every possible way, and shape both by novelist and dramatist, it is no wonder that it requires actual experience to enable those parties who are in the habit of being carried away by just what they hear to come to a correct conclusion. "'I will go to sea!' ejaculated Tobias. "'Yes, I will go to sea!' As he spoke those words, he passed out of the gate of the temple, leading into Whitefriars, in which ancient vicinity his mother dwelt, endeavouring to eke out a living as best she might. She was very much surprised, for she happened to be at home, at the unexpected visit of her son Tobias, and uttered a faint scream as she let fall a flat iron very nearly upon his toe. "'Mother!' he said. "'I cannot stay with Sweeney Todd any longer, so do not ask me!' Not stay with a respectable man? A respectable man, mother? Alas, alas, how little you know of him. But what am I saying? I dare not speak. Oh, that fatal, fatal candlestick. But how are you to live? And what do you mean by a fatal candlestick? Forgive me, I did not mean to say that. 
Farewell, mother. I am going to see. To see what, dear? said Mrs. Rag, who was much more difficult to talk to than even Hamlet's gravedigger. You don't know how much I am obliged to Sweeney Todd. Yes, I do. And that's what drives me mad to think of. Farewell, mother. Perhaps forever. If I can, of course, I will communicate with you. But now, I dare not stay. Oh, what have you done, Tobias? What have you done? Nothing, nothing. But Sweeney Todd is... What? What? Nothing, nothing. And yet at this last moment, I am almost tempted to ask you concerning a candlestick. <gasps> don't mention that, said Mrs. Rag. I don't want to hear anything said about it. Oh, it is true then. Yes, but did Mr. Todd tell you? He did. I have now asked a question I never thought could have passed my lips. Farewell, mother. Forever. Farewell. Tobias rushed out of the place, leaving old Mrs. Rag astonished at his bearing, and with a strong suspicion that some accession of insanity had come over him. Oh, Lord have mercy upon us, she said. What shall I do? I am astonished at Mr. Todd telling him about that candlestick. It's true enough, though, for all that. I recollect it as well as if it were yesterday. It was a very hard winter, and I was minding a set of chambers when Todd came to shave the gentleman, and I saw him, with my own eyes, put a silver candlestick in his pocket. Well, then I went over to his shop and reasoned with him about it, and he gave it me back, and I brought it to the chambers and laid it down exactly on the spot where he took it from. To be sure said Mrs. Rag after a pause of a few moments. To be sure, he has been a very good friend to me ever since. But that, I suppose, is for fear I should tell, and get him hung or transported. But, however, we must take the good with the bad, and when Tobias comes to think of it, he will go back again to his work, I dare say, for, after all, it's a very foolish thing for him to trouble his head, whether Mr. Todd stole a silver candlestick or not. We left the barber in his own shop, much wondering that Tobias had not responded to the call which he had made upon him, but yet scarcely believing it possible that he could have ventured upon the height of iniquity which we know Tobias had really been guilty of. He paused for a few moments and held up the light which he had procured, and gazed around him with inquiring eyes, for he could indeed scarcely believe it possible that Tobias had sufficiently cast off his dread of him, Sweeney Todd, to be enabled to achieve any act for his liberation. But when he saw that the lock of the parlour door was open, positive rage obtained precedence over every other feeling. The villain! he cried. As he dared really to consummate an act I thought he could not have dreamt of for a moment. Is it possible that he can have presumed so far as to have searched the house? That Tobias, however, had presumed so far, the barber soon discovered. And when he went into his parlour and saw what had actually occurred, and that likewise the door which led to the staircase and the upper part of the house had not escaped, he got perfectly furious. And it was some time before he could sufficiently calm himself to reflect upon the probable and possible amount of danger he might run in consequence of these proceedings. When he did, his active mind at once told him that there was not much to be dreaded immediately, for that most probably Tobias, still having the fear before his eyes of what he might do as regarded his mother, had actually run away, and, in all likelihood, muttered the barber, he has taken with him something which would allow me to fix upon him the stigma of robbery, but that I must see to... Having fastened the shop door securely, he took the light in his hands and ascended to the upper part of his house, that is to say to the first floor, where alone anything was to be found. He saw at once the open bureau, with all its glittering display of jewels, and as he gazed upon the heap, he muttered, I have not so accurate a knowledge of what is here as to be able to say if anything be extracted or not, but I know the amount of money if I do not know the precise number of jewels which this bureau contains. He opened a small drawer which had entirely evaded the scrutiny of Tobias, and proceeded to count a large number of guineas which were there. 
These are correct, he said, when he had finished his examination. These are correct, and he has touched none of them. He then opened another drawer, in which were a great many packets of silver done up in paper, and these likewise he carefully counted, and was satisfied they were right. It is strange, he said, that he has taken nothing, but yet perhaps it is better that it should be so, inasmuch as it shows a wholesome fear of me. The slightest examination would have shown him these hordes of money, and since he has not made that slight examination, nor discovered any of them, it seems to my mind decisive upon the subject that he has taken nothing, and perchance I shall discover him easier than I imagine. He repaired to the parlour again and carefully divested himself of everything which had enabled him so successfully to impose upon John Mundell, and replaced them by his ordinary costume, after which he fastened up his house and sallied forth, taking his way direct to Mrs. Ragg's humble home, in the expectation that there he would hear something of Tobias, which would give him a clue where to search for him, for to search for him he fully intended. And what were his precise intentions, perhaps, he could hardly have told himself, until he actually found him. When he reached Mrs. Ragg's house, and made his appearance abruptly before that lady, who seemed somehow or another always to be ironing, and always to drop the iron when anyone came in very near their toes, he said, Where did your son Tobias go after he left you tonight? Law, Mr. Todd, is it you? You are as good as a conjurer, sir, for he was here. But bless you, sir, I know no more where he has gone to than the man in the moon. He said he was going to see, but I am sure I should not have thought it, that I should not. To see? Ah, then the probability is that he would go down to the docks. But surely not tonight. Do you not expect him back here to sleep? Well, sir, that's a very good thought, that of yours, and he may come back here to sleep, for all I know to the contrary. But you do not know it for a fact. He didn't say so, but he may come, you know, sir, for all that. <sighs> did he tell you his reason for leaving me? Indeed, no, sir, he really did not, and he seemed to me to be a little bit out of his senses, he... <laughs> oh, Mrs. Ragg, said Sweeney Todd. There you have it. From the first moment that he came into my service, I knew and felt confident that he was out of his senses. There was a strangeness of behaviour about him, which soon convinced me of that fact. And I'm only anxious about him, in order that some effort may be made to cure him of such a malady, for it is a serious and a dreadful one, and one which unless taken in time, will yet be the death of poor Tobias. <sighs> These words were spoken with such solemn seriousness that they had a wonderful effect upon Mrs. Ragg, who, like most ignorant persons, began immediately to confirm that which she most dreaded. Oh, it's too true, she said. It's too true. He did say some extraordinary things tonight, Mr. Todd. And he said he had something to tell which was too horrid to speak of. <laughs> now the idea, you know, Mr. Todd, of anybody having anything at all to tell, and not telling it at once, is quite singular. It is, and I'm sure that his conduct is such as you would never be guilty of, Mrs. Ragg, but... Ark, what's that? <gasps> it's a knock, Mr. Todd. <laughs> Stop a moment. What if it be Tobias? Oh, goodness gracious, it, it can't be him, for he would have come in at once. No, no, I, uh, I slipped the bolt of the door, because I wish to talk to you without observation. So it may be Tobias you perceive, after all, but let me hide somewhere, so that I may hear what he says, and be able to judge how his mind is affected. <laughs> I will not hesitate to do something for him, let it cost me what it may. There's the cupboard, Mr. Todd. To be sure, there is some dirty saucepans and a frying pan in it, and of course it ain't a fit place to ask you to go into. Never mind that, never mind that. Only you be careful, for the sake of Tobias's very life, to keep secret that I am here. The knocking at the door increased each moment in vehemence, and just as Sweeney Todd had succeeded in getting into the cupboard along with Mrs. Ragg's pots and pans, and thoroughly concealing himself, she opened the door 
and sure enough, Tobias, heated, tired, and looking ghastly pale, staggered into the room. Mother, he said, I have taken a new fort, and have come back to you. Well, I thought you would, Tobias, and a very good thing it is that you have. Listen to me. I thought flying from England forever, and have never set foot upon its shores, but I have altered that determination completely, and I feel now that it is my duty to do something else. To do what, Tobias? To tell all I know, to make a clean breast, mother, and let the consequences be what they may, to let justice take its course. What do you mean, Tobias? Mother, I have come to a conclusion that what I have to tell is of such vast importance compared with any consequences that might arise from the petty robbery of the candlestick which you know of, that I ought not to hesitate a moment in revealing everything. But, my dear Tobias, remember that is a dreadful secret, and one that must be kept. It cannot matter, and besides, it is more than probable that by revealing what I actually know, and which is of such great magnitude, I may, mother, in a manner of speaking, perchance completely exonerate you from the consequences of that transaction. Besides, it was so long ago, and the prosecutor may have mercy. But be that how it may, and be the consequences be what they may, I must and will tell what I now know. But what is it, Tobias, that you know? Something too dreadful for me to utter to you alone. Go into the temple, mother, to some of the gentlemen whose chambers you attend to, and ask them to come to me and listen to what I have got to say. They will be amply repaid for their trouble, for they will hear that which may, perhaps, save their own lives. Oh, God, he's quite gone, thought Mrs. Rag. And Mr. Todd is correct. Poor Tobias is as mad as can be. Alas, alas, Tobias, why don't you try to reason yourself into a better state of mind? You don't know a bit of what you are saying any more than the man in the moon. I know I am half mad, mother, but yet I know what I am saying well, so do not fancy that it is not to be relied upon, and go and fetch someone at once to listen to what I have to relate. Perhaps, thought Mrs. Rag, if I were to pretend to humour him, it would be as well, and while I am gone, Mr. Todd can speak to him. This was the bright idea of Mrs. Rags, and she forthwith proceeded to carry it into execution, saying, well, my dear, if it must be, it must be, and I will go. But I hope, while I have gone, somebody will speak to you and convince you that you ought to try to quiet yourself. Mm. These words Mrs. Rag uttered aloud for the special benefit of Sweeney Todd, who she considered would have been there to take the hint accordingly. It is needless to say he did hear them, and how far he profited by them. We shall quickly perceive... As for poor Tobias, he had not the remotest idea of the close proximity of his arch-enemy. If he had, he would quickly have left that spot, where he ought well to conjecture so much danger awaited him. For although Sweeney Todd, under the circumstances, probably felt that he dare not take Tobias's life, still he might exchange something that could place it in his power to do so shortly, without the least personal danger to himself. "'What a relief!' muttered Sweeney Todd as he slowly opened the cupboard door unseen by Tobias. What a relief it'll be when this boy is in his grave, as he really will be soon, or else I've forgotten all my moral learnings and turned chicken-hearted. Yeah. Neither of them very likely circumstances. Yeah. Treading as if each step might involve some fearful consequences, he thus at length got completely behind the chair on which Tobias was sitting, and stood with folded arms, and such a hideous smile upon his face, that they together formed no inept representation of the Mephistopheles of the German drama. I shall at length, murmured Tobias, be free from my present dreadful state of mind by thus accusing Todd. He is a murderer, of that I have no doubt. It is but a duty of mine to stand forward as his accuser. Sweeney Todd stretched out his two brawny hands and clutched Tobias by the head, which he turned round till the boy could see him. And then he said, Indeed, Tobias, and did it never strike you that Todd was not so easily to be overcome as you would wish him, eh, Tobias? 
The shock of this astonishing and sudden appearance of Sweeney Todd was so great that for a few moments Tobias was deprived of all power of speech or action, and with his head so strangely twisted as to seem to threaten the destruction of his neck, he glared in the triumphant and malignant countenance of his persecutor, as he would into that of the arch-enemy of all mankind, which probably he now began to think the barber really was.' 